and welcome to another episode of the Final Ghost Podcast, where we explore the intersections of horror film and feminism. This first series, we're bringing on special guests to dive deep into film and TV shows with witchcraft at the heart of them. I'm Anna, co-founder of the Final Ghost and your podcast host. So, you might have noticed we took a little break and came back to a worldwide pandemic. Strange times out there and... We're staying in, staying safe, we hope you are too. And more than ever before, we're watching those movies that we love and finding ways of engaging with people over the horror and witchy films that we enjoy watching, re-watching, indulging in, and talking about. This episode, we're going to be talking about a different version of a film we've already discussed on this podcast, a contemporary take on the dance horror witch story, Suspiria. Luca Guadagnino, celebrated writer-director behind such art house hits as The Bigger Splash and Call Me By Your Name, took on the challenge of remaking Dario Argento's classic a few years ago. We already discussed the original film, as well as its sequel, Inferno, on this podcast a few episodes ago. Do check that one out. The basic premise of the 2018 Suspiria is the same. A young, naive dancer called Susie, played here by Dakota Johnson, a Guadagnino regular, arrives in late 70s Berlin to audition for the renowned Helena Marcos dance company. She quickly naps the lead dancer role in an upcoming performance, impressing the head of the school, Madame Blanc, played here by the most frequent of Guadagnino collaborators, Tilda Swinton. But Susie's arrival also coincides with the disappearance of another dancer. Meanwhile, an inquisitive psychotherapist and a member of the troupe uncovered dark and sinister secrets as they probed the depths of the studio's hidden underground chambers. I'm joined in this episode by film critic, writer and programmer Alexander Helen Nicholas. A Suspiriologist, if you will, Alex published the first book on Suspiria in the English language and has written some really fascinating articles on Guadagnino's film too. For those of you who haven't seen Suspiria, be warned that we will be spoiling the film in its entirety from the start, pretty much. It's available on demand now, and it might just be the indulgent, gory, dance horror that we need right now. So I do encourage you to check it out. excited one in the least because this is the first time I've actually managed to speak and I've been following your work for years but also because you're probably the foremost expert on Suspiria <laughs> a Suspiriologist I yes like that. yeah that's a great job title <laughs> I'm gonna take it it's so nice to talk to you too and more than mutual you wrote the I believe still only English language book on Argento Suspiria the 1977 version um, could you just introduce a little bit your history with with the films? I'm going to refer to them in plural. Yeah, look, we'll start with the 77 one. So I, I, I should have probably looked this up. I believe it's still the only English language book specifically on the film. Maybe somebody else has dived in and had a play 
And I hope so. And if you're thinking about it, I personally encourage you to do so because we need more people writing on the same stuff to get ideas flowing and going. I'm being, I'm digressing here. So I'm, a, I'm, I'm only human. I love Dario Argento. And I must confess that the first time that I saw Suspiria, I thought it was not a superior Argento film. I was really into uh, Deep Red, Tenebrae, the uh, Giallo um, were very much my thing. And um, I revisited this a couple of years ago in an article. And I think it's largely because I know that we all worship the aesthetics of VHS, but I saw a really clapped out copy of Suspiria on video and it was muddy. It was just really muddy. All of those beautiful jewel colours just kind of melted into this sort of murky, browny khaki colour. And I thought, yeah, this is cool, but I don't get it. I don't get it. And um, it was really only when I saw a cleaner copy of Suspiria that it was like being struck by lightning. And the reason why I wanted to, and I talk about this a lot in the book, but the reason why I wanted to write about it is because it functions in a completely different way to how we normally approach cinema. Um, Patricia McCormack has a wonderful quote, and I'm paraphrasing here, but she talks about the radical nature of Argento Suspiria is that it asks us to, it just asks us to engage with cinema in a really different way. So things like narrative and character, um, we it demands that we put them behind things like our sensory experience, like colour, sound, movement, these all take over. Um, and so the fundamental experience of watching Suspiria is different to a lot of cinema, certainly a lot of horror cinema, and it's even really different, I think, to things like Deep Red and Tenebrae. Um, and yeah, it, it, it's just, it's radical cinema. I do, I do think that the Argento film is really fundamentally radical cinema. Um, so I was, um, I'm not a, I'm not a Guadagnino fan. I think I need to say that from the outset, I'd not been moved in the way other people had by his films. So the news that he was doing it, um, I'm not precious about remakes. Um, mm-hmm. I, I love, I, I love the idea of it. And I think some, there's some really superb remakes and it's got a long film history and, you know, it's not like a, it's not a particularly new phenomena. Um, and I like the idea of people rethinking the same ideas and the same material. I think from a creative perspective, it can really be quite rich and interesting. So I certainly wasn't hostile to it, but I don't think I was excited as a lot of people were about it with it being a Guadagnino film. Um, but I have an absolutely extraordinary friend and colleague called James Shapiro um, from Draft House in the US and uh, Fantastic Fest. And he was, he'd seen it and he was the one that said to me, it's, you need to, you need, you personally, you need to watch this film. Mm-hmm. He said, basically, this is, this is if Fazbinder did a horror film. It's, it's specifically of interest to you. So coming with his stamp of approval, everybody's got that friend, you know, that mm-hmm. one friend that's, you have to see this and you don't even question. There's not even a conversation. Well, James is that for me. Um, and I don't know whether I would have been so keen to see it without that personal direct reference. Mm-hmm. Um, so I saw the uh, North American premiere, I think it was, uh, at Fantastic Fest in 2018. Um, and what was and your I, what was your initial experience? Because I also imagine a premiere in at Fantastic Fest of that film would have been a glorious, or at least a very particular experience. Because watching a film like this that carries so much baggage with horror fans must really draw a reaction from an audience? It was really interesting. Um, I mean, I, I'm obviously very biased, but I think that Fantastic Fest is the best place to see any film. Um, you know, there's just such a such a great vibe. Um, so, yeah, clearly biased. Clearly, clearly <laughs> that's not coming from an objective perspective. Um, but I watched it. I was, I was there um, with the horror jury that year, and I watched it with a fellow juror, uh, Anya Stanley, who um, is a brilliant film critic. And um, everybody in the room, um, I think Anya noticed, noted it at one point, um, but a few other people I spoke to, it was such an interesting experience because you just couldn't read the room. You couldn't tell how people were reacting to this mm-hmm. film. And I can't think of any other movie that I've seen that had so much pressure on it in a way um, and I just didn't know how people had interpreted it. I couldn't tell if people liked it or didn't like it, which That's is really extraordinary because, you know, you, I mean, usually there's a vibe, you yeah. know, you can kind of pick it up. and um, Especially with so a horror I, film, you can sort of tell quite distinctly whether people are into it or not. Yep. It was really, um, yeah, I won't say that that was a blanket response, but certainly the people that I spoke to um, shared my feeling of that. 
so even um, even when I left that night, it was like I don't know how that went. I actually don't know what in 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 a broad sense of reception, I don't really have any idea of how that went. In terms of my own personal taste, I liked um, I liked it a lot more than I thought I would. I, mm-hmm. um, there are certainly elements of it that I thought weren't so strong for me personally. Mm-hmm. Um, but I know other people who they were those things that didn't work for me, that they're their favorite parts. So again, I draw a line between my objective and my subjective, you know, my taste as mm. a person who likes horror movies and, um, and my kind of <laughs> suspiriologist status. Um, <laughs> what were the things that worked the most for you? The, I, um, look, I was really gifted it was a gift for my friend James to tell me that it was a Fassbinder film. So I went in with that very much in my head and that was how my experience was framed. It was almost like not even so much this is a Guadagnino film, it's like this is a Fassbinder film. Mm-hmm. And um, I still to this, re-watching the film recently, I hadn't seen it since since um, since it came out. So just re-watching it before you and I spoke, um, just struck so strongly by, I mean, I think the film is as much about Fassbinder as the third generation um, from 1979, as it is Dario Argento, Suspiria. I, I just think that those three films are in very, very heavy dialogue with each other. And, um, for, and for people who may not have, may not be familiar with Fassbender's work, what do you think are those really striking elements? Yeah, look, I, I mean, obviously the setting, that sort of late 70s um, Berlin, you know, is very much Fassbender's scene. That was mm-hmm. his world. Um uh, Guadagnino and I believe his production designer who worked on the film, they both mentioned Fassbinder's um, and, and um, the three generations in particular as heavily influencing the look of the film. Mm-hmm. So if you think about Argento Suspiria and you think about the Guadagnino one, I think the first thing, even before you get into storyline or politics or anything like that, is just the look. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's sort of, you know, I mean, Suspiria is, you know, this really vivid, you know, Luci- uh, Luciano Tavoli, you know, these beautiful jewel colours, you know, these extraordinary Technicolor film work. Um, it's like looking through a kaleidoscope. It's gorgeous. Whereas the the Guadagnino is totally, you know, comparatively it's really desaturated. You know, all the colours almost sucked out of it. Um, and that, that aesthetic is very much um, not just in terms of production design but also in terms of cinematography um it's really it just looks like a Fassbinder film it's it's cut like a Fassbinder film um and then yeah you get you get very specifically into the more kind of political aspect of it so mm-hmm. you know the stuff and the um you know the time you know the German autumn um yeah. you know the things that were going on in the world at that time which I'm sure I'll come back to Mm-hmm. more because I do I do think that um what Fazbinder was talking about and what Guadagnino was talking about in this film are very locked in I think that they're very very tightly I think that the um the three generations the Fazbinder film um is way more explicitly an influence on Guadagnino's film than has been publicly acknowledged mm-hmm. um I mean the six acts I mean the the three uh, the three generations starts with a title screen that says a comedy about parlor games in six parts full of suspense, excitement and logic, cruelty and madness, just like the fairy tales we tell children to help them prepare for death through the changes of life. That kind of applies exactly to, to Suspiria. I mean, take comedy out and put in horror and it's the same. Mm-hmm. Six acts, you know, fairy tales, six act witches. Ooh. And I know you mentioned that you're not a, you're not a fan of Guadagnino himself, yourself. Not, and- and it's not a not a criticism. It just doesn't gel no. with my taste set. He doesn't do it for you. That's absolutely fine. Um, but how do you think he made use of of horror? Because I know there's there's sometimes reservations about sort of non genre filmmakers sort of going into the scene and and taking over properties or remaking or even experimenting in a genre that can be quite protective. I I really don't hold with that. I kind of um I'm very strongly of the mind that we want yeah, you know, it's it's a playground. Horror is a playground, it's a carnival. Yeah. You know, it's we want we want people playing in the muck of bodies and blood and gunk. Yeah, we want the more people that we have playing with it, then the more even if it sucks, we just want different people playing with it. Um so I welcome it. I really, really welcome it. Um I think for me personally, where the film falls down is where it adheres to more traditional ideas of what horror is. I think that the stuff about the film that's more interesting and radical to me is where it really stamps its own signature mm-hmm. um, on, on the kind of subject matter in question. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with um, David 
Kajanic, is that if I pronounce his name right? David Kajanic, the screenwriter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I think, I think that's correct. Yeah, I, my apologies to Mr. to David if I pronounce your surname right. I think of this as much as a um, a, I think of it as a Guadagnino Kajanic collaboration. I think that that David Kajanic's um stamp on this film is really super important. I mean, one of the things that really struck me about Guadagnino Suspiria is the fact that it delves a lot deeper, it seems, into the mythology that was set up by by Argento um, in the trilogy of of in his witch trilogy, and not just in the in the Suspiria film. So, you know, what did you make about kind of this expanded universe that we encounter? You know, the the dance school where we actually do see dancing, um, the history, um, the dynamic between the witches and the coven the political background, there's just so much going on in this one. I see the original Argento film as a palette that artists can um, can use to make their own work. Um, and I'll, I guess I'll come back mm-hmm. to that in a moment. But when I think of what Guadagnino and Kajanic have done with the 2018 Suspiria, I think of as in a way being we can draw lines between what Kathy Acker, the author Kathy Acker did in 1993, she wrote a, a experimental novel called um, My Mother Demonology, and there's a chapter in that called Clit City, mm-hmm. which is basically her reimagining of Suspiria. She was a huge Argento fan. She dedicates that chapter to Argento. But she kind of uses it as her source material, and then she just Kathy Ackerifies it <laughs> in the same way I think that Guadagnino and Kajanic, Guadagnino and Genetikify it. Kajanicify is a really hard word to say. <laughs> I don't know why I did that to myself. Um so, yeah, they've kind of taken this source material and it's sparked something with them. And, you know, this 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 kind of really this setup of, you know, the girls' school and the witches and, and it's given them the, 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 the place to grow something that's very much their own. Uh, in the same way that, that Argento um, and, and Dario Nicolodi did, I think, with the original material. Uh, and I think that there's more politics in the first one that's often given credit for, but it's presented in a very Argento way. Um, one of my favourite parts, and I talk about this all the time, um, but I'm obsessed with it, is, you know, the famous scene with the, you know, Susie arrives at the airport and mm-hmm. it's raining. Yeah. The music is saying, witch, witch, and it's incredible and we're all high and it's just brilliant. Um, <laughs> when she goes out to, into the rain, you know, those amazing doors open and she walks out through the rain, whoosh, the scarf is swirling. Oh, it, I'm getting carried away. Um, <laughs> when she gets into the taxi, when she gets into the taxi, just behind the taxi is a row of McDonald's signs. The taxi's parked near McDonald's and there's just this row of golden M's. Um, And it's so detached from the world that Argento's film is ostensibly set in. But later, you know, later on when when Susie talks to Udo Kier, Jessica Harper talks to Udo Kier, he's not actually playing Udo Kier in the film. One of my favourite scenes in the whole film um, is that really unusual daylight scene where they're talking um, about witches. Uh, That's at the base of the BMW building. So, you know, and, and all the way through the film, there's this talk about, and um, we get this more and more in, uh, in in Inferno when the the mythology of the three witches is established. Um, it's about money. It's just about money. That's what drives the three, that's what drives the three mothers. It's all about uh, economics. It's all about greed, um, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And it's present in that first one. You know, it's, it's in this very Argento-esque kind of way. But I think that it's a conscious decision if we decide to strip away the politics. I mean, you know, there's the the scene where Daniel is murdered by the dog. Um, sorry, to defend the dog, the dog was being controlled, but the, the dog is a good dog. I don't want to. <laughs> the dog being controlled by the witches kills the owner. <laughs> I must defend the dog. Um, but that's we must a, affect uh, the old dogs. Yes, exactly, all dogs. Um, but that was at Konigsplatz in Munich, where that was filmed, which was where um, the Nazis would hold rallies. You know, this is not accidental. And there's, you know, you get that kind of sense from the scale of that that location. Um, so I think, in a way, you know, that the, the original Suspiria set gave us the the kind of um, the toolbox or the palette, and other artists have come along and used that toolbox to paint their own pictures in extraordinary ways. And one of the the things that really struck me from this version of the of Suspiria was just how much time it spent on developing the relationship between all the characters I mean all the female characters I was gonna say but you know (laughs) most of them are women I think there's three male characters in the whole of the film 
Um, so what did you make about the dynamics that are established between the coven? I, I mean, I really love it. I, and I think it's the strength of the, fil- of the film. Um, for me, the, the 2018 Suspiria is very much about that kind of factionalization. Um, and I, I was certainly am not alone on that front. Um, but those dynamics and that politics. So you have a, you know, you have the coven and they're factionalized. You know, they're split between the, the Blanc and the Marcos factions. But then you also have this split between uh, a generational split between the, the coven and the mm-hmm. students. Um, and I love that dynamic. And I think that that dynamic, again, feeds really quite, you know, this this generational question and, and these questions of factionalization and loyalty all locks into um, and the, the politics of that all locks into the, the Fassbinder, uh, the three generations. Mm-hmm. So I think that, that it's more than a surface aesthetic connection uh, to Fassbinder in this film. I think that it's arguing effectively the same thing, but in a very, very different way. Um, one of the things I love about that Guadagnino brought into the 2018 film from the original film is this, it really privileges the relationship between Sarah and Susie. Uh, And I I just think that's one of the most special relationships. And it's so easy to overlook because I think when we think of the character of Sarah, we think about her, her graphic death (laughs) Um, or maiming um, as it is in, in, um, in the Guadagnino one, you know, it's things, things don't work out great for Sarah. I think she does get, she does get a lot more um, time for us to develop a relationship with her. She's a lot more accessible in the way that she's portrayed. You know, you, you can kind of, um, her kindness seems genuine towards Susie. And it's loyalty. And I think that that's what really drives the character of Sarah. And I think that she's such an important character. I really, I really do. And I, I think that Pat Hingle as well. I really like having Pat, be more than a a footnote um Mm -hmm. I think that Pat both Pat and Sarah are really really interesting because the thing that marks those relationships with Sarah at the core so Sarah's friendship with Pat Sarah's friendship with Susie is loyalty it's absolute devotion absolute protection absolute loyalty and that's really vital I think that that's a really fundamental heart of this film that's very easy to overlook um, in in the world of Suspiria, in the Suspiria narrative universe, that that at its heart is this really, really, really tight female friendship. It's beautiful. Doesn't end beautifully, but <laughs> no, it does not. However, the the kind of the older generation that we see portrayed in a film, kind of the the matriarchs, the actual coven of witches, we don't really get that sense of uh, loyalty from them because they always seem to be actively in competition with each other, at least the characters of Blanc and Helena Marcos. You know, one of the, before we even see Marcos, we know we get a very distinct, very overt sense of their competition with one another when everyone else needs to vote for either Marcos or Blanc. So what did you make about this exploration of the, of a darker side of a, of a, of a, closed off but still a society where it's only women in power and and yet that's not an idealized harmonious uh supportive relationship at least with on the side of the witches i think it's about generational politics as much as it's about gender politics in that we're looking at an old guard versus a new guard and i think the character of madame blanc in the 2018 film stands in the middle of that um, and that she, and you can tell just by her age, you know, she's not this sort of ancient, you know, mm-hmm. she's younger mm-hmm. than the others, but she's older than the students. And she has the direct physical, you know, she's in the class, you know, she, she's like a bridge to between these two generations. She mm-hmm. stands between these two generations. Um, and I think that that's really fascinating to me because I think that we have the old guard very strongly rec- represented by Marcos and the Marcosians. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's this, you know, this, this, the young people are there to be devoured. They are basically fueled to keep the old guard going. Whereas um, Madame Blanc's is not, that's not how she rolls. She rolls in a very different way. And her engagement in this broader generationally defined landscape is much, much more in line. You know, she has an, she has a personal connection with her students. Um, and we see that very much through her relationship, obviously, with Susie. Um, you know, there's something going on there and we feel it and we we know where that's going to lead us by the end of the film. Um, so I, I can't I can't see I can't see the relationship between the women 
as being anything but defined generationally. And the fact that it is like, exactly as you said, the fact that they're not friends, there's loyalty there, but there's no friendship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if anything, there's isolation. There's an extraordinary character who really fascinates me that I've never really quite been able to get my head around. I believe her name is um, uh, Griffith or Gilbert. She's the young, uh, she's not young, but she's younger than she's uh, younger than than Helena Marcos. But she's the teacher who who uh, slashes her own throat at the table. Oh, Miss Griffith. Miss Griffith. Yeah. She fascinates me. Like, why is that in there? What does that do? And I think that there's something really really important about her I think that that's very very deliberate that she's in there and I I love that I I still find it a little bit slippery but she very much speaks about the isolation and the loneliness and the alienation that this kind of context has and it's the opposite you know the way that she feels is the opposite to how to how Sarah and Pat and Susie feel you know there's not there's not those ties there's this total sense of disconnection we have to talk about Tilda Swinton who I think carries the film. It's very much an ensemble piece and everyone is um, striking in their own way. You know, the fact that you (laughs) would draw out um, kind of this supporting character of Miss Griffith as well as being incredibly memorable to you is testament to that. But Swinton, who's collaborated with Guadagnino in a number of his previous films, even down to his first feature film. uh, So they've been long-term collaborators in... What did you make of her performances? And I use the plural because she plays a triple role, both as a Madame Blanc, as Helena Marcos, and as the only primary male character we have, um, Dr. Klemperer. It's really when I first saw the film that um I mean it, there'd been rumor that, that yeah. Klemperer was was Swinton, but it hadn't been announced. And um Jessica Harper was was at Fantastic Fest for a QA and somebody asked about that and it was all a sort of inside joke. So it was one of those like everybody knew, but nobody had confirmed it yet. Yep. Um, I mean you just need to look at Klemperer and of course it's Tilda Swinton. Of course, I yeah. think that um I think I've reached a point, and I don't think I'm alone in this, and it's certainly not meant as a critique, where Swinton is so I mean, she's she's icon- iconic in the in the truest sense. So when you see Tilda Swinton on screen now, it's Tilda Swinton as X character. You know, you're always struck by her presence as Tilda Swinton, mm-hmm. um, which is definitely not a critique of her craft. But I think it's a it's a it, it, if anything, it's a um, an acknowledgement of her scale. You know, the kind mm-hmm. of iconic stature of Tilda Swinton now. And what I love about it, and obviously this goes this locks in exactly to her relationship with Guadagnino that you've been talking about, she just looks like she's having so much fun. And I love that. I love you. That's what it's about. You know, there's something about the, the carnivalesque glee of making a horror film that she just, you could just see her physically like soaking it in and lapping it up and just loving the pantomime of horror. It really and, feels like she's given oh, the room to expand quite literally in terms yep. of just the, just spreading her wings, being able to take up so much screen space and the way that he frames her as well, you know, even in in shots where you would imagine, oh, this is this is a wide shot, this is one where he needs to show us the room or whatever what else is doing, and it's just the back of her neck. And that's so yep. much more interesting than whatever everyone else is doing in that frame. She just sucks up every single iota of attention and I don't mean this as a criticism it's just kind of a testament to her screen power really and the way that Guadagnino has a way of shooting her that seems both entirely natural and also just letting her completely take over every single scene it's that absolute and it's the same with Kajanic it's an absolute collaboration Mm. I mean you know I keep talking about Guadagnino's Suspiria but it's Guadagnino and Kajanic and Swinton's Suspiria you know it's it's a collaborative process um, and she just is drawn to his eye and his eye is drawn towards her performance. And that mm. dynamic and that magic is witchcraft. You know, there's something of the essence of the supernatural, I think, to those kind of creative connections. I really reject the idea more broadly of, of muse. I hate the idea mm. of a muse because it denies the two-way interaction that we see in a film like Suspiria. You know, she's not his muse. He is her muses. You know what I mean? There's a dynamic there. There's an energy. There's witchcraft. It's power. It's beautiful. It's exciting. And I don't think it's um, – and I think that, that craft is a question. You know, technically he's a great filmmaker. Technically she's a brilliant actor. 
but there's something more there. And you can tell that from the t- complete delight that she is taking in that film. Just absolutely just glee. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. I think just witnessing it as an audience is an extraordinary thing. You know, it's an extraordinary feeling. And you mentioned the word a few times, but I think we've been skirting around it for a bit. But what did you make of the way that witchcraft was portrayed in this film? Um, it's, it's, I think it's brilliant. Um, I, I, one of my, one of my shadow jobs, because all film critics have shadow jobs, um, for many years was working on a book series, um, about contemporary dance. So this film very much locked into a, um, uh, one of my second passions. And one of the things I find so funny about the Argento film, um, is how there's no dancing in it. And I, yes. I just think that's hilarious. I think it's, and the one time Susie tries to dance, she just she peels over. And I, yeah. I just think it's hilarious. And I love that he replaces, you know, traditional ballet with a choreography of death. You know, these beautifully choreographed murder scenes, these beautifully choreographed mm-hmm. violence sort of dance scenes, really. Um, and I love that Kajanik very much, and it, and it was his research, and, you know, he's spoken quite quite vocally about this, that he approached dance in a really different way. And I think that this is what really puts the stamp on Suspiria. So he obviously looks towards um, Mary Whitman, who's mm-hmm. a super famous modern dancer, mm-hmm. choreographer. I mean, if you look at things, and I think you'll find it online, I think MoMA have it online, but her 1926, there's footage from 1926 of her witch dance. Her witch dance, yes, it is online. Yeah. Um, and it's incredible. Like, and, and he really, you know, he really took this idea from people like her and Pina Bausch, this idea of, of choreography as spell casting. Mm-hmm. And he just took that little kernel and just ran with it. So, you know, the amazing sequence in the film where um with the jumping, the leaping. Yes. The how high can you get? That comes directly from Witch Dance and from Mary Wigman. But you look at Tilda Swinton in it, and I love that on one hand, she looks like Meg from Megan Mog. You know, she looks like a kid's <laughs> drawing of a witch. You know, she's got the long hair and the big cape. All she needs is the pointy hat. Yeah. She's like almost like a caricature of a witch, but then you put her next to She's like a minimalistic version of a witch, isn't she? She's kind of She really is. A broomstick and a pointy hat. And you know, <laughs> it's it's a it's a Victorian Halloween poster. You know, it's it's brilliant. But she also looks exactly like Pina Bausch. Like they've clearly styled her on the yes. you know, modern dance icon Pina Bausch. You know, the hair, the the style of the dress, the body language. Um, it's that the look of, of, um, Madame Blanc comes directly from Pina Bausch. Um, and you know, the, the dance folk, you know, like it's, it's so, I mean, that dance, you know, the ropes is, is very much a kind of consciously locked in, I think, to a lot of the traditions. Um, and the last scene as well, the, the second, the second portion of the, of the dance that we've seen, the one ones were actually in the witches layer in the underground area. It's, it's so meticulously framed where it feels and is performed like a ritual there's no pretense anymore of it being a modern dance performance or a choreography this is a spell this is literally spell casting and they're using their bodies as tools and it's all most of it is shot from above as well which makes just the combination of all of these women performing these movements so chilling and terrifying in a sense because you don't at least myself I couldn't really know where to focus but found myself really drawn in by the combination of everything the kind of symmetrical of the symmetry of all of it and I think that that's where we start getting into this sort of more political dynamic whereas they function as a as a singular organism yes um which from a dance perspective um is really interesting but from a political perspective that's really interesting too we're talking about the power of uni- unified and joined women's bodies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and and that's not complicated. You know, that's almost like a, in terms of the metaphor, that's kind of a self-sourcing pudding, you know, that women are strong and powerful when they are joined together mm-hmm. and they, they bring their power together. It's, it's not complicated, but it's still jaw-dropping. I mean, I think it's a jaw-dropping and really radical thing to say. Um, and to say it not verbally, but to present it in exactly the way that you described, you know, as a, as a visual image, uh, seeing women move, a, a group of women move as one whole in, in the context of this film, I think is really interesting. Um, and that, you know, clearly by the time we get to that real climax of that ritual, and it absolutely is a ritual, and that feeds back again to, you know, Bausch and, and Wigman, um, 
this is after the, the, the bloodletting. You know, this is after the factionalization wars of Suspiria of 2018 have been dealt with. You know, the 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 Marcosians have been sorted out, you know, so they've <laughs> they've kind of put they've put the internal schisms to bed. That's been those power tensions have been sorted and now we come together as a whole and we are unified and we are powerful. They've taken they've taken out the dissidents and now it's just the ruling of um of Marius's periodum. And I think it's more than just dissidents. I think it's generational and it, and this takes me mm. back and I keep going back to it. I want everybody who's seen the Argent, uh, the Argento Suspiria and the Guadagnino Suspiria to just do whatever you can to track down the Fassbinder film because this film is so deeply locked into it because all three really at the core share the same fundamental message, which is the young cannot be agents of change if they allow the old guard to continue to profit. Each film says that. It's all about this generational tension. But um, there is, do you think in terms of the way that magic is portrayed in it, I found it quite interesting that it's at a certain point, and obviously this changes once you rewatch the film and you know um, how it ends, there is an element of transference of power from yes, Madame Blanc absolutely. to to Susie, and yes, but it's, it, it's absolutely it's interesting in that context. But kind of even within the the framework of the supernatural elements existing, um, and the whole the whole plot being and the whole kind of maneuvering and even Volta dance being an elaborate scheme to get, um. Helena Marcos a fresher newer body so she can continue ruling what do you think about kind of the way that the magic seems to be both contained in one person transferable to another person but also emanating from the group of them from the coven like I don't think a single one of these witches could be a witch individually yeah no absolutely and I think that 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 collaborative force is is in the um, in this DNA of the film. I think that what's important here, and I'm not sure if this answers you directly, so feel free to get me back on track if I go off topic here. Um, what is so significant in this shift from, um, from Helena Marcos to Susie is it's not just power as a, if you think of power as a, a stable, unchanging object, so it's not like a baton being passed from one to the other um, in, in that the kind of power that Susie represents is a totally different kind of power. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's intergenerational in a sense um, in that it goes, it's, it, we see power ex- given from or taken really from one generation to a new generation. Um, but the way that power is understood, the way that power is expressed and the motivations and the understanding of what power means all change on a fundamental level by the time Susie has that. And I think there's a really interesting scene. Um, there's a couple of little moments in this film that I just think is so fascinating that the first time you see it, you don't really click on them. But um, mm. the fact that Susie very early in the film, I mean, it's two and a half hours long, so I say early relatively, <laughs> um, where she witnesses the the um, the older women um, torturing the police officers. Yes, you know she sees she spies on them and she's aware of this. You know, mm. it's like the first film. You know, that oh, you know, Susie's like, oh, what's the big mystery? Oh, what's the big mystery? And it's like we hear witch in the opening credits. So you know, it's for Susie, it might be a, a mystery in the Argento film, but for us, we know. You know, it's and I think that's again, I think that the Argento one's quite funny and quite deliberately funny in that sense, but. Susie's aware of what's going on, you know, this idea of her being this victim, you know, land for the slaughter, um, I think really changes when you revisit the film. I think that yes. Susie has perhaps more intuitive knowledge that she feels through her body um, that she needs to decipher because things that should normally be shocking to her are not shocking. So I think she's processing a lot of that quite early on in the film, perhaps not consciously, but through her body. I think it's a really embodied knowledge and I think that witchcraft is embodied uh, is represented in this film as an embodied power that's quite interesting so do you think that considering the the twist that we learn at the end that Susie was um the mother the mother of size all along that actually that's a that's a force that's embedded in her but that she's not aware of that there's no design to her attraction towards the the school academy, which is Madame Blanc, and kind of her lack of surprise at her own prowess, at some of the things that she sees 
do you think it's just kind of her awakening as opposed to manipulating or creating yeah, situations? I, I don't get the feel. I mean, this is just my yeah, feeling on reading. it. And, and it really is an intuitive feeling. So I don't present this as a hard and fast argument. Um, is and I, and I do think that in a way it's validated in the film that she has that capacity within her. Um, it's not something that she becomes. It become, it's it's more of a kind of transformation or a manifestation of something that's already there, a kind of power that's in her. And I think that, you know, these scenes where we see her as a child, you know, being drawn to Berlin, really, you know, drawing on the map, this magnetic pull to, towards Berlin and towards New York to see the dance, you know, the, mm-hmm. this, this, this magnetic and the way that, that Marcos, um, sorry, the way that Blanc, the way that Madame Blanc is really drawn she she identifies that in her very clearly. You know, there's no way that there's not that instant connection and that instant recognition when mm-hmm. she sees Susie dance. And I think that um, it's very, you know, when you first see the film, it's like, well, she sees Susie as a potential um, victim, I guess, you know, like a, a sacrifice. But I, she clearly knows that there's more to it. And I think that the relationship that that grows between those two women is is very much that. It's, you know, that the re- relationship deepens as Susie becomes more aware perhaps more bodily aware, but they're learning it together. You know, we, we really see those two women connect and understand each other through their physicality. One of the things that really struck me upon rewatch is this rejection of the mother, especially in this line that um, Helena Marcos tells Susie when we're still kind of trying, they're still trying to perform the ritual of to accept me, you must reject the woman who bore you and death to any other mother. You know, how do you think this, what did you, what did you make of kind of, of this both expiration and rejection of the idea of motherhood? I think there's lots of different ways to come at that. So Guadagnino was very explicit before he um, even began making the film that he was coming to it from a very psychoanalytic mm-hmm. viewpoint. Mm-hmm. So Clearly, clearly, Freud is at play here. You know, the the kind of um, the, the monstrous mother kind of figure is plays into that. Um, there's a line in the film again. I keep talking about these little moments that mm-hmm. have just sort of stuck in my craw a little bit, um, not because they annoy me, but because they fascinate me. But Klemperer is talking to Sarah. Uh, um, I think it's when they're at the cafe, although it could be somewhere else. It's in one of their intense conversations where they're talking about uh, the potential that that. Uh, Pat or Patricia hasn't been captured by the witches. Maybe she's gone to fight for the underground. Um, maybe she's part of the Red Army. Maybe that's where she's gone. And that's the assumption that runs through the surface that she's left them. Of course, we know different. Mm-hmm. Um, but he he says something along the lines of, look, whether it's um, whether it's Mother Blanc or um, Mother Meinhof, it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. And and he's talking, of course, about um, Andreas Bader and Ulrich Meinhof from the um, West German far militant Red Army faction, the Baden Meinhof group, who, who permeates this film. I mean, this film was um, oh, one hundred percent, it's powerful. You know, like, so, but I love that direct line, that direct, explicit line. It's like whether it doesn't matter which mother it is, they're both mothers, and there's this idea of the fraudulent mother. And I think the idea of the fraudulent mother to me is perhaps even more interesting. Than the idea of the, the 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 monstrous mother or the villainous mother, it's the idea of the false mother, and how biology is is such a skeptical. It feeds in a really skeptical way into that equation, like the idea that you know, well, this is your birth mother. Mm-hmm. It's it's almost like well, that that's meaningless. You know, it questions the authority of the birth mother. It questions the biological nature of motherhood, and it asks us, you know, to kind of consider. It, it problematizes this question of motherhood and and genuine genuine motherhood um as opposed to fake motherhood and and there's a lot going on there with it's being so explicitly tied into um very very real world phenomena like like um the like the german autumn i'm sort of kind of wondering about where that leaves susie um susie especially in her reveal as this mother figure and quite a merciful figure as well you know especially at the end of of the of the film she's she performs quite consistent acts of mercy in both towards pat and sarah but also towards clemper as well um she's forgiving to a degree but i'm not sure how i i enjoyed the twist i love the questions that it raises 
I'm not quite sure how to make sense of Mother Superiorum in embodied by someone like Susie. Yeah, I I do think that there is. Um, I think the the last half hour of the film is really interesting. Um, mm. And I find that people who have very strong opinions about this film in any direction, that's what we always end up talking about. Um, that's interesting. I, yeah, in so Kajanic, well, Kajanic wrote the the big um, the big climax, the big climax dance, and he wrote that as bloodless, as completely bloodless. So, and and the the kind of the 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 blood aspect was very much Guadagnino's doing. So, mm-hmm. on, on in the screenplay, that was not there. So you still had the dancing and the, and the bodies and the death and the stuff, you, but not the actual. You get to have the, the blood, the, the viscera. The viscera was the weakest part for me, and and I say that as somebody really like I I felt that the horror aspects of this film were its weakest element. Um, I've I've read that that you wrote that about the, that. I know, that. I know people that say exactly the opposite, and and these you know people that really really live horror so uh, that's very much a taste thing and I can't critically justify that I think it's just a taste thing it just didn't sit right for me but I did like the action around it like I thought that the narrative and the thematics of it worked but for me um so can you elaborate about what about the the horror didn't quite click for you it just felt silly to me it just (laughs) and that's again it's not a it's that's not a you know I haven't really I wouldn't put that in a review because I recognize that as, as a taste thing Mm. Um, but it didn't feel, it didn't feel in keeping with, and I think a lot of the body horror stuff in this film didn't really feel true mm. to a lot of the other stuff. And, um, I mean, clearly I like gore, I like blood and stuff, but it just didn't, I mean, the stuff with Olga, just the CG with Olga being all contorted and stuff, mm. it just, it just looked a bit silly to me. Um, That's like so- I love the I love the conceptual so stuff behind yeah. it and that 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 morphing and the and the um the cruelty of it. I love the conceptual stuff surrounding it but in terms of just what it looked like it just didn't work for me the aesthetics I think just a simple aesthetic thing um but I I, I can't I in in good conscience I just can't say that that's a crit- criticism of the film mm. because I don't think it's valid I don't think it and because I know people that feel exactly the opposite and I understand why they do connect with it mm. I, and I, you can't deny somebody the right to connect with something. I, no, totally. I do. So I, I do find it really, <laughs> but everything else worked for me really well. So yeah, that's just a taste thing. I do find it quite interesting the way that we, you know, having been talking and thinking about witches on screen in many different forms. One thing that I've found is that very often it's quite bloodless violence, the sense that it spells, it's, you know, manipulation, and it's not as gory as other um, monsters of cinema, in many ways. So kind of this Suspiria going full on into over-the-top extreme gore to a degree, very, very aestheticized. It's very, it's almost beautiful yeah. to look at. Um, but we're, I don't think we're that used to seeing witches on screen be so gory and so viscera heavy um so I was wondering what you thought about kind of the violence that we're presented with in that sense where we do see a lot of contorted graphic very bloody violence um because I'm thinking as well of kind of films that are quite horrific in the way that they depict witches bodies like um Roald Dahl's The Witches the Nicholas Rogue film but they're still bloodless you know there's almost an element of fantasy of masks to it whether it's here it feels like somebody's entrails well they're quite literally very often somebody's entrails are falling out or being ripped out of them so do you have kind of any thoughts about how how perhaps it is unusual for us to see witches in a film where there's a quite a lot of graphic and quite bloody violence as well yeah, I mean, I think I think you're right, and I I think that it is inseparable from the broader physicality of this film, how it's um, how its aesthetics, its narrative, um, every part of this film is tied into physicality. Um, so the the dance, you know, I've, t- I've t- we've talked a little bit about dance being about embodied power, mm-hmm. and the the flip side of that is that embodied disempowerment 
also has to be represented physically. So I think that there's a very neat logic to it. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that if you want to see people disempowered, if you want to see women empowered, you see them dance. If you want to see women disempowered, you see them bleed. Mm-hmm. And you see them mutilated and you see the meat hooks go in. And mm-hmm. so I think that there's a, there's a very, there's a, there's a cons- really strong conceptual logic that shows the the more visceral horror of this film as the flip side to the dance. And I do think, again, that ties into the, you know, Argento's little play with the idea of um, Susie not dancing, you know, being having a film set in a ballet school that doesn't have dance in it. And he replaces that with a different kind of quote-unquote ballet, you know, this really gruesome, these beautiful, gruesome horror vignettes. Um, so I think that there's a there's a playfulness again I keep coming back to this word playfulness mm-hmm. uh, with how with how Guadagnino's film really addresses that so it doesn't feel random to me I think that conceptually it feels really tight really really tight in that you want to you want to see you, you don't want you don't want lack of power described to you you don't want to see it played out in dialogue you want to see it in bodies the same way that you've seen power demonstrated flying you know learning to leap flying up and being drawn magnetically to the floor you know these kind of mm-hmm. physical displays of what power is and what power does um and not not just by uh gesture but through these really big actions you know these fully embodied movements so the the, the spectacle of it makes sense to me it makes total sense to me fantastic um i'm i'm gonna wrap up is there something that you'd like me to to get you to 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 mention I think I think we've I think I've talked too much about Fazbinder but that's okay <laughs> <laughs> um I do I do really I know it's not a particularly easy film to find but I do mm. really feel that um it's it's the third part it's the third mother the Fazbinder film is the third mother <laughs> if, if you want to really get into the heart of the Guadagnino film the the key comes from the Argento film as much as the Fazbinder um, I think that they're really he's the the Guadagnino films really in mm. dialogue with with these films um, in its discussion of of not just gender politics and I think that the film really points us towards those kinds of discussions quite explicitly um, but at the same time I mean a lot of reviews of of this film are quite high profile ones you know it's like well the the historical setting is just set dressing it's really peripheral and it's sort of, it doesn't really do anything with it. I feel very much the opposite. I feel you... very strongly that, that, that this film is very explicitly like that line that I keep coming back to. It's like, you know, it was either going to be um, mother Marcos or mother Meinhof, you know, <laughs> that, that, that these two yeah. figures. And I don't think, I don't think that's saying, Oh, you know, uh, Ulrich Meinhof is a, is a monstrous witch. I don't think that it's that kind of simpler thing, but I think that there's a line being drawn here about generational power. And about what it means, and and the Fazbinder is like who 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 are you working for? Who does your who does your you've become empowered? Where who are you going to use that power for? And that's the question I think that Susie has at the end. How are you going to use that power? Who is that power for? And Susie's answer to that is very very different than than the um, than the Helena Marcos answer, and I think that's joyful I think it's radical and I think it's political and it's very different from the answer that Blank would have given as well if she was the one with the ultimate power absolutely and I, I see very much see Blank as a as a middle figure between mm. those two generations you know she's almost like this sort of perimenopausal figure you know in, in between um, so you have this it's it's the three generations yeah um, and, and also again, a, a frustrated one yeah and I think that she recognizes her own redundance mm-hmm. um, and I think that that's what drives the factionalization I think it's very much driven by that um you know that one side is yeah and, and just how that manif- manifests I think is really I mean I haven't got my head around it and I'm not sure you know the things that I've really connected with this in this film I don't know whether it's me bringing it from my own perspective or whether it's coming from the film you know and I love that stuff mm-hmm. and but I do seems... think that this film is really in dialogue with with um with the Fazbinder film as much as it's in dialogue with the with the Argento film. And it seems like one of those truly rare crossover horror films that has a lot to dig in from the genre side and also 
can function and is layered and um, intentional and speaks to other types of cinema and literature and reference points that a non-genre specific audience might also have so much to glean from it. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, And I think just in you know, this sort of highbrow, lowbrow thing that we're always faced with horror, you know, the film. Remember when it, when there were, I think the trailer came out and everybody was talking about Oscar buzz? Yes. Um, it's it's going to win Oscars. So yeah, it didn't quite work out that way. Um, that's okay. Maybe maybe not every film needs an Oscar to be a good <laughs> film would be my very tongue-biting answer to that. But, um, you know, not not just in terms of highbrow, lowbrow cinema. You know, is it an art film? Well, it's got a Nino. It's gonna, you know, it's got that kind of branding to it. It played at it played at the Venice Film Festival, but also just in terms of the remake. And you know, it's it's a, you know, is it a remake? Is it a reimagining? Is it in dialogue with? It breaks down a lot of these um, assumptions. I think that are really heavily drenched in these kind of um, taste values. You know, so it's not just about horror. It's about the remake. It makes us think about the remake I think in a really different way and I'm all for it I'm like you know I mean Candyman's coming out soon and I'm really in, you know I think that that's going to do similar heavy lifting on, on the yeah. remake in front and I'm not saying oh, it's going to be great or it's going to be terrible but um yeah we saw it with Maniac I think Maniac's a really good example um I think this is the sort of stuff that a question. remake should be yeah it should take Absolutely. the the very basic um notion or the very basic ideas around the film but then expanded into whatever the filmmaker that's doing the remake or reimagining is actually concerned about you know like we've been discussing for almost an hour the myriad of influences and collaborations and um and approaches that Guadagnino and his collaborators have taken that are miles away from the approach that Argento and his collaborators took to make the original Suspiria. So I I love the idea that these films are talking to each other and not one of them are they're standing next to each other and not one of them is above or below one another. They're such entirely different interpretations of the very same core ideas, which in their own right were also taken from you know, Thomas De Quincey's ideas. Yeah, um, absolutely. So it's not like the mother, the three mothers and the notion of the three mothers or the idea of a coven of witches or of a matriarchy has been invented by Argento or Guadagnino or anyone else. That's, ex- that's exactly, I mean, you know, Argento was looking at Snow White, you know, the Disney Snow White, which was yeah. one of the reasons why he, why he cast uh, Jessica Harper was because she looked like, she looked like uh, Snow White from the from the Disney cartoon, which I think is gorgeous. You know, and it's I think that a remake. Um, I, I used the metaphor before, but a remake is like a palette. You know, you sort of take what you, you take. You use an original text to paint a new text, um, and that's what genre is. You know, that's what that's not not just even genre cinema, but that's what witchcraft mythology is. You know, that these stories are so dynamic, whether it's in folk traditions, fairy tales. Uh, video games, movies, books, you know, the, uh, subcultural identities, you know, the, 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 there's a palette where you can take what you need to make your own thing. And that that own thing might be a new work of art. It might be a new identity. Um, you know, the craft is brilliant like that. You know, that's, I think, why we keep going back to the craft, because it's um, that, that, that idea that you can, you can take from mythology or from a, from a, you can take that and make it your own. Um, and that sense of empowerment, that sense of collaboration, um, that's that's where it all sort of intersects, I think. That's fantastic. Um, Alex, thank you so much for for your time and for your brilliant insight on the film. My pleasure. It was lovely talking to you. And um, where can people find more of your work online? Um, I have a website, which is the, the bluelenses.com, um, and I'm on Twitter. You can find me at Suspiria Alex, <laughs> unsurprisingly. Um, yeah, that's where you can find me. Oh, cool. Thank you so much again, and um, I hope we get to speak more soon. Yeah, done. <laughs> That's it for another episode of the Final Ghost Podcast. Please do rate and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. 
You can find out more about what we do on thefinalghost.co.uk and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at thefinalghost.uk. If you enjoyed this series, please do leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps and we'd love to know what you think. You can also get in touch with us on hello at thefinalghost.co.uk. Follow Alex on Twitter at SuspiriaAlex and I am on Anna Be Demented. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for more Witchy Goodness next week. <laughs>